Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word, for your love and your grace and your mercy, and that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, we, we recognize your goodness and we rest in your goodness. And, Lord, we just want to hear from you today. So please have your way with us. Guide us and lead us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 10. Lord willing, today we read 10 and 11. Jeremiah chapter 10. You know, a lot of Jeremiah, like you might be thinking in your mind, I bet he's going to be talking a lot about false idols and uh, Jeremiah warning that trouble is coming and and something like, I bet that's what 10 and 11 are, I bet it's got stuff that sounds like that, right? And you're thinking that because it seems like that's what all of Jeremiah sounds like, right? But have you noticed that sometimes God just says the same thing? Have you ever noticed that? Does that make it boring? No. Because his mercies are new every morning. Jeremiah wrote, wrote that for us. We'll read it several weeks from now. And yet there's just something, I think, I guess if I can encourage us to kind of just settle in and ask the Lord. Sometimes we go, sometimes we approach a gathering like this and we say, all right, what's the pastor going to teach me? And I hope that the pastor's diligent to do some of that, right? But there should be a different level by which we say, Lord, would you please speak to my heart right now? And what happens then is the Holy Spirit, who's way smarter than I am, who knows the number of hairs on her head, the Holy Spirit can speak something to each of us individually that's like a, it's like a surgical knife right where we need it, yeah. right? And that's altogether different than me teaching you about pagan idolatry. Does that make sense? It may be in the context of me teaching you about pagan idolatry, but it's very specific. And so I would encourage us as we go through these chapters, because honestly, in my mind, I'm like, wow, there's only 52 chapters of this. <laughs> And then a few more in Lamentations, just to kind of summarize the whole vibe, right? And so, I think it's important that we kind of remind ourselves, Lord, speak to me. Lord, and you may walk out of here and not remember a thing about what I said, but there might be something that the Lord just triggered in your heart, whether it was from talking to somebody or praying with somebody or from me talking or, or from whatever it was that is from the Lord, and I would encourage you to hold on to that and pray through that and let that be a part of, of who you are. Is that fair? So with that, Jeremiah is continuing his discourse, and uh, discourse is probably the right word, um, at the temple. 
that he started in chapter 7. And again, keep in mind sort of the scene. He's standing there on the steps of the temple. Tons of people coming in in the temple. Um, and lots of religious people. Lots of religious people. And Jeremiah is basically telling them all that judgment is coming. That, uh, that worshiping God and worshiping idols doesn't work. It's an abomination. Uh, all of that. And as a result, the call is to repent, and, um, and it's all falling on deaf ears, except for ours, which is cool. All right? So uh, no one's responding. Jeremiah is willing to go against the flow. We talked about this last week. Uh, we need to be willing to go against the flow, especially in the world we live in today. And uh, uh, I've never known that to be truer than, than today. Chapter 10. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Do not learn the way of the Gentiles, nor be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. And so what we see here, he's moving to, he's going to talk about a specific example of pagan idolatry, which is kind of interesting in our culture, if you've read ahead. But uh, basically the way of the Gentiles that he says here is the way of the pagans, right? You recall Historically, when God brought the people out of, out of Egypt and then through 40 years in the desert and then into the promised land, you recall when he said, um, you know, the, the book of Deuteronomy basically is a summary of all those sermons of, of Moses. And uh, as he's, okay, now when you go into the promised land, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to do. And the, the, the overriding theme was when you go into the promised land, I want you to basically get rid of those people. And that seems harsh, but in the context of things, it was for the protection of God's people. And I want you to not, basically, I want you to not learn their ways. Those are Gentile nations. I want you to not learn their ways. Because if you learn their ways, you'll adopt their ways. And if you adopt their ways, then you'll be pagan idol worshipers that just happen to wear the name uh, followers of, of Yahweh God. And it doesn't work. Fast forward a few centuries, that's where we're at. That's exactly where we're at. We got a, a, we got a Jewish nation that is Jewish in culture only, but not in the true worship of the Lord. And so they're all coming into the temple because it's the cultural place to be, not necessarily genuine worship, and here they are. And he says, don't learn the, quote, way of the Gentiles. The way of the Gentiles is to worship idols. Now, again, you've heard me say this before. I'll probably say it for a long time. You don't have little statues of idols handcrafted out of wood on your fireplace mantle. So you can all breathe a big sigh of relief. Therefore, we never have to worry about idolatry as modern-day Americans. Right? Wrong, wrong, wrong. Let's rephrase it. They had these little things that were kind of silly. We have our things that are kind of silly. Anything that we put our trust in more than God is an idol. Anything that we worship more than God is an idol. So you might say, well, I don't bow down to my car, but boy, it sure is cool, 
right? I don't bow down to my, uh, my financial security. But boy, I sure do rest in that. And I trust in it and the wisdom that I had to establish it, right? So if we're honest with ourselves, we all struggle with idolatry. We all struggle with idolatry. We all struggle with idolatry. We all struggle with the idea if there was something that I had, it could be some sense of security, of worldly security. It could be some sort of relationship. Boy, if this relationship would work out, my life would be perfect. So much so that that's our focus, right? If this relationship would work out, my life would be perfect, right? And sometimes even when we talk about idolatry, when I, when I go through this whole spiel about, well, we don't have, you know, statues on our mantle, but we do have idols, even then we might think about some possession. But let me just expand our thinking a little bit, that it's broader than just a possession. Yeah, we know that, you know, you can idolize your fast car or whatever like that, but we, you know, even that, most of us don't do that. But there's, there's always something, I would argue, there's always something that's sort of fighting for our devotion and our attention higher than the Lord. Is that fair? So that's the, quote, way of the Gentiles, okay? So as we read these words to these Jewish people, now all of a sudden we need to recognize that this does apply to us. This does apply to us. James 1.27 says this, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. To keep oneself unspotted from the world. Okay, so to visit widows and orphans. I like the idea of visiting widows and orphans in their trouble. Uh, I mean, that's just an example of how we serve one another, right? But the, the idea there is we serve one another without expecting any kind of big fanfare. We just do it because it's the right thing to do. We, we live out our faith. But there's another piece of it that we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. And I would ask the question, do we wear any spots? Like, is it leopards that have all the spots? We went to the zoo yesterday. See how much I learned, right? Leopards. Do we wear spots like leopards, spots of the world, spots from the world? And that, I would say, you know, we have to ask, that's between us and the Lord. But the world wants to stain us. The world wants to um, make us one of them. And yet we can't, you know, live in a cave. We've got to be in the world and not of the world. But the idea is we don't wear the spots of the world like it's an identity. Okay? And so all that to say, I'm trying to get us with the idea. When he says... Uh, don't learn the way of the, of the Gentiles, that's, uh, you know, pagan idol worship, that does, in fact, apply to us. That does, in fact, very much apply to us. For the customs of these people, of the peoples, are futile. Futile. 
The Hebrew word means worthlessness. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workman with an axe. Now this is getting relevant, right? You may or may not know that our Christmas tree tradition. Oh no, are you kidding? He's going to bust my Christmas tree tradition? No, I'm not going to bust your Christmas tree tradition. We've got one that's about 30 feet tall and yeah, it's a big part of our, of our tradition, right? But the roots of that, not the roots of the tree, but the roots of the tradition are from basically Gentile paganism, right? So, to be fair, you know, if, you really, if somebody said, hey, I don't, have, I don't have a Christmas tree because I don't want to take part in, in Gentile paganism, I would respect that. But if somebody said, you know, I never think about Babylonian idols when I put up my Christmas tree and it's a sentimental reflection of, of our life and our family and, and we're celebrating. I don't, think that, I don't think that necessarily diminishes our worship of the birth of Christ, okay? Is that fair? Is that a, I covered all bases, right? Okay, good. But anyway, for them, it wasn't about the birth of Christ because Christ hadn't been born yet, right, physically. But uh, for them... They had this curious tradition, and it's, it's a little bit humorous. So one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of a workman, of a workman, a human workman, with an axe, a human tool. Now they decorate it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with, hammers and, they fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. And so I like this idea they decorate it with silver and gold. Gives it value, gives it beauty. It's an object of worship. And again, if you keep our heads around the idea that we all have things that compete with our uh, loyalty to the Lord, therefore we all have, have a temptation for idolatry, I would ask the question, does God, does God, Need us to add a little gold and silver to him to make him more valuable or to make him more beautiful? Does he need any of that? Not at all. Now, that's a rhetorical, ridiculous question because we know that God needs nothing of ours to add value or to add beauty to him. But then maybe something that's a little less absurd. Do we ever do things like that? Do we ever try to make him more valuable? Or to add worth to him. You know, if you serve the Lord, you know, he's going to do awesome things for you. Like, we need to help God out. Do we need to help God out? No. Is God in and of himself enough, beautiful enough, valuable enough, all of those things enough? Yeah. And sometimes when we add religious works or religious tradition to the worship of God, I think of it like we're, we're kind of throwing gold and silver at him. Try to make him, you know, because he's not quite good enough. Because he needs my help, right? He needs us to, in order for really, us to really, um, you know, have a right understanding with God, we need to, you know, we kind of sometimes throw our religious baggage at him. Like you need to be, you know, uh, you need to be faithful 
tithers, or you need to, be, you need to do uh, all the right stuff, you need to uh, share your faith enough times, you need to do all these things that are all good things, just like silver and gold is, is a good thing, it's a valuable thing, but God and God alone is really who we worship and what we need. And I think it's important, and it may feel like splitting hairs a little bit, but I think it's important that when we worship God, when we learn about God, we're just, when we read this book, we're learning about God and all of His attributes. All of His attributes. And... Um, Nate and I were at a thing a couple weeks ago, and uh, there was a certain, we'll just say a certain doctrinal bent to this uh, group of gatherers at this convention. We were there, Nate was just there selling guitars, and I was there just watching Nate sell guitars. And And this bent of Christians, I believe, genuinely love the Lord. I think we'll see him in heaven, and I think we all need to learn how to get along with one another as Christians. So I'm not beating up on him, necessarily. But it just just highlighted a point to me. They place a very high value, a very high value on the sovereignty of God. Is there anything wrong with the sovereignty of God? The sovereignty of God is beautiful. Talk about security. I place a lot of security in the sovereignty of God. God's in control. Period. God's in control of the world. God's in control of history. God's in control of governments. God's in control of economics. Praise the Lord. And God's in control of my life. That's the sovereignty of God. But I think in that, they're so focused. I told Tracy, I was like, there are a lot of attributes of God. I'm here for four days. All I hear about is one of them. The sovereignty of God. I don't really hear about the goodness of God. Oh, it's there, but I don't really hear about it. Right? don't really hear about the grace of God. No, it's there. I don't really hear about it. Does that make sense? And so what we, what we are attempting to do by taking the whole counsel of God is we want to learn about all of the aspects of God as much as we can and spend our lives learning and worshiping and surrendering to and trusting in all of who God is. And guess what? That takes a lifetime and beyond. That's why I believe, personally, I mean, we don't know what, you know, is beyond so much. Specifically, it's beyond our understanding. But one of the reasons I think God gives us eternity is because it's going to take eternity to learn of the magnitude of God. And even then, you know, we're just going to be getting a glimpse. So, anyway, so they, these guys, they add value to their, to their gods by throwing gold and silver on them. I like this also. You know, they uh, fasten their, their tree there with nails and hammers so it won't topple. I heard one person say, if your God has a tendency to topple, that should tell you something. If you have to prop up your God, that should give you a clue as to what you're dealing with. You're dealing with an inadequate God. 
well, I sure don't worship my Christmas tree. And I would never worship anything that could topple. But I sure am glad that I got my financial security all set up because it will never topple. The market is stable. And you can trust it over the long term. What, will, what can my financial security do? It starts with a word, it starts with a T, ends in apple. Right? It'll topple. Financial security, I love, I love the, the term actually, because it's an illogical two words stuck together. There's no security in finances. Right? There's no such thing as financial security. Now, does God want us to be stewards and, you know, all that? I have to caveat everything because everything's a balance, right? I have to caveat. Does that mean we should all be frivolous? No, 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 no. Do what the Lord shows you to be good stewards and wise and all of that, but don't worship an illogical thing called financial security. Because why? It can topple. You see how this, this is like, like you take a tree, you worship a tree, you say, oh, I'm not, I, that's good, I don't worship a tree, because we all know that a tree can topple. But let me suggest that those things that compete for our allegiance to the Lord can very much topple. So we've got to be careful. Only God won't topple. And praise the Lord that he is capable of carrying us through the trials of life, through all of life's challenges. Verse 5, they're upright like a palm tree. And by the way, they can't speak. They must be carried because they cannot go, go by themselves, right? So do we worship a God that, and again, I don't want to beat this dead horse, but do we worship a God that has to be carried around from one place to another, right? Oh, I need him over here, so, uh, you know, I've got to carry him over here, and then tomorrow I'm going to need him for this situation, so I've got to pick him up and carry him over here. Do I need to do that? No. God, the God we worship is everywhere, right? He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-present, right? Those are just some of his attributes. He's also sovereign, which is great, right? But he's, he's all of those things. Then he says here, do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do good. It's always interesting to me, when you talk about, um, like in many modern day, like I think of, of our missionary friends, when they come back and they talk about like some different types of tribal people groups and stuff like that, there's always a term that comes up that they talk about the people are, are engaged in, and that is they do um, ritualistic things to what? Appease the gods. You heard that term? They want to appease the gods. What does it mean? It means they don't want to, they, 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 they want to do things that are wicked, frankly, and, you know, in the Old Testament history, there's a lot of wickedness. Really, it's, 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 it's almost unspeakable. A lot of wickedness that they, that they undertook to, quote, appease the gods. That's what happens when we start to get into a god that, um, that is not God, right? So in the same way that our god won't topple over, right, but... And I just, I'm stuck on the idea of financial security because really that's a modern American God. And I just made the case, I hope convincingly, that our financial security can topple over, right? 
Well, can I do things to appease the, my fear of the financial security God? Right? Even that, some people have a fear. Like, let's say you got a billion dollars in your account. If you got a billion dollars in your account today, what are you going to think about? One of the things you're going to think about. One of the things you're going to think about is, I'm afraid it'll, it's vulnerable. I'm afraid, it, I, I hope it doesn't go away. Right? And so you have this fear. These, these false gods bring with them fear. Now, are we supposed to have a fear of God, as it's claimed in the Bible? Yeah. And we talk about that. It's like an awesome respect of God, and then there's also another aspect of God that if we're outside of His will, we should have fear. The paradox in that is, so I think of two kinds of fear. The paradox in that fear of God, like afraid of God, is the only people who should be afraid of God, like afraid of His judgment, are people who by definition are rejecting God. And so they're rejecting God, and so they don't realize that they should fear Him, and so they don't fear Him, and therefore they're not afraid. You ever talk to one of these people? They like, they're like, have nothing to do with God. So they don't really walk in fear of Him. We have a fear of God, like an awesome respect of God, and praise the Lord, we're not outside of His will and all of that, and so we have an awesome respect of God. And we have enough of a respect of God to know that He'll discipline us, and He can get our attention if He needs to, and so we, we have a little bit of a fear of that, but it's not a fear like, uh, to, like afraid of Him. The pagan idol worshipers, they were afraid of their gods, and they still are in many parts of the world. They have to appease the gods. They have to do all kinds of ritualistic things to appease the gods. Let that not be said of us. Verse 6, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might. <coughs> I love <coughs> excuse me, that we sang all these songs this morning about the greatness of God and there's only one God and, and all of that. There's none like him. No object, no person, no relationship, no false sense of security. Nothing that can be said, you are great and your name is great in might. Nothing equals the majesty of God. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. So no, we don't appease the gods like the pagans. We fear him enough to serve him. But they are all together, and you notice this, they're all together dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. They are all together dull-hearted and foolish. Now, if you're dull-hearted, that has to do with your heart, right? If you're foolish... That has to do with your mind, right? I think it's important. I don't, again, I don't know if it's splitting hairs, but I think it's important that it's written in, those, in that order. They're dull-hearted and foolish. When we fall into the temptation to worship something other than God or place our trust in something more than God, generally here's how it goes. It, go, it starts with our heart and then winds up with our mind. We become dull-hearted and foolish. You know, I look at the things that uh, uh, people do who don't acknowledge God. 
And I can look at it from an outsider's perspective and say, and very often say, that's kind of foolish. That lacks wisdom. Well, I think that starts with a dull heart. I think it starts with a dull heart. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. If you love me, that's my heart, you'll keep my commandments. That's what we think and what we do, right? That's what we think and what we do. Our hearts direct our minds. Our hearts direct our minds. Our hearts direct our minds. We need to be very aware of that and very, very uh, cautious of that. Well, I really want that thing. I want that thing so bad. I want that thing so bad I can taste it. I want that thing so bad. It's just going to make my life awesome when I get that thing and my heart is in love with that thing and all of that. Next thing you know, that's going to drive my thinking. It's going to be what I study and it's going to drive my actions. It's going to drive my actions. We've got to be super, super careful. Be careful about what you're devoted to. You hear that? Be careful about what you're devoted to. If it's not God Almighty, it's dangerous. And trust me when I say, it'll affect your thinking. It'll affect your decisions. It'll affect the consequences of those decisions. It'll affect your lifestyle. It'll affect everything about you. Sooner or later, it'll, it'll affect who you are. And it starts with allowing your heart to be pulled in a direction away from the Lord. They become dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates. It's brought from Tarshish, great silver from the greatest places. Gold from Euphaz, the work of, a crafts, of the craftsman. And the hands of the metalsmith, blue and purple, are their clothing. They're all the work of skillful men. So these idols were made by craftsmen. A design created by a designer. Which is greater, the design or the designer? In any situation. All right. Work with me here for a second. Speaking of wooden idols, we got this cool podium right here, right? Right? It's made out of wood. Everybody see it? All the angles? I'm flipping it around. Remember um, some of you old rockers that are older than I am? Remember Rod Stewart used to do this with his, with his microphone stand? Remember that? You remember that, Jerry? You remember that. So uh, this, is a wooden, this is a wooden thing made by a craftsman, right? Anybody want to guess who the craftsman is? It ain't me. It's Nate. Nate, Nate, made, the, Nate made the stand. Everybody give it up for Nate. Nate made the stand. All right. It's awesome. 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 Very nice. Nice work. Nate made the stand. Now you all know. Secret's out. We only had one secret in this church. That was it. And so uh, it's, been, it's been divulged. Nate made the stand. It's the work of a craftsman. Right? Now, if I, which I won't, praise the Lord, ask Nate to stand up here next to the stand. And I said, you know, we had like an applause meter or something, right? right? I said, which is greater, Nate or the stand? Right? 
I said, everybody give it up for Nate. All right. All right, give it up for the stand. It's an awesome stand. Isn't it an awesome stand? Yes. Yes, thank you. It's an awesome stand. It's solid cherry for crying out loud. It's a great stand, right? Is this ridiculous? This is ridiculous. Thank you for agreeing with it. It's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous that the design is greater than the designer. And as a matter of fact, the design by definition is a limited, is a limited representation of who the designer is. Very limited. Idols created by craftsmen are always idols that are always less than the craftsmen. Well, here's the other thing. I don't want a God that I have to add silver and gold to make him look good. I don't want a God that I have to nail up with a hammer and nail so, so that he won't tip over, right? I don't want a God that I'm afraid of him like not being who I want him to be. And I don't want a God that's less than me, right? I don't want a God that's less than a human being. The design is less than the designer. Always, and by definition. I don't want that kind of God. Thus you shall say to them, verse 11, the gods that have made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. I'm sorry, the gods that have not made, that's an important word, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these, under the, these heavens. Now, it's interesting even, and it's a little bit weird, that God gives these, God Almighty gives these gods almost like a personal identity. Does that, does that seem weird? Does it bug you, or just me, that I could take a little piece of wood and I could carve it out and, you know, if I was a craftsman, uh, carve it out and do all this thing and set it up on my mantle and I could say, that's Baal. He's got a name. Is it kind of weird to give that thing a name? Everybody with me? That's weird. I, I call this a podium, right? A non-personified, or a stand, whatever. A non-personified, I don't give him a name, right? That'd be weird. Thank you. Like, and by definition, like, is this a, is it, do I give it, would I give this a male or a female name? Right? It gets even more confusing. Right? Right? Do I call this John or Jane? No. No. God gives these, these things names. So, I think it's important to keep in mind, I, I think, this is personally what I think, Baal, let's say we got, let's say we got a statue up here, we call him Baal right? Why does he have a name? I think because he's a representation of the demon behind that, that false god. And that demon does have an identity. The demon has a, a bit of a, you know, it's not a, not a human being, but it has a personified identity. And so that's why I believe God gives names to these, or the, you know, even the, the, the pagan nations had names for these gods, so, we've got to be careful. And again, these are all 
apply to us. Verse 12, he has made the earth by his power. This is God. God has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. He has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. And so by his power, his wisdom, and his discretion, God is in charge. He has the power, the wisdom, and discretion that's infinitely beyond us because he's not created by us. And thus we can look for him, look to him for power. Where do we get power? From the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We need that power. The Greek word is dunamis. It's the word we get dynamite from. Many of you have heard this. We need that power. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the power of the Holy Spirit. That same power, Romans 8, lives in us. Can you get that from a piece of wood? No way. Wisdom. The kind of wisdom that says, hey, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, whose inscription is on this denarius? Tell you what, you give Caesar what is Caesar, you give God's what is God what is God's. That is supernatural wisdom. Paul standing before a mob about ready to be torn to pieces by a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, right? Paul knows that Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They're all coming at him like a mob about ready to tear him in pieces. And Paul says, hang on, it's because I believe in the resurrection of the dead that I stand here before you, right? What do these people all start doing? It's brilliant. What do they start doing? The Pharisees are like, all right. The Sadducees are all like, he's a heretic. And then they start fighting each other. Paul slips out the back door, right? That's supernatural wisdom. That's supernatural wisdom. We need power. We can get it from God. Lord, Luke 11, uh, Luke 11, verses 11 through 13. You know, if your son asked for a fish, would you give him a stone? All that. How much more so would your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who would ask? Freely accessible. You know how we get it? We pray. Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Lord, come upon me in the power of your Holy Spirit and give me the power to live this life because I feel like I'm going against the flow. I need power. That's where we get it. We get it from God. Wisdom. James 1. James 1. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. We get wisdom from God who gives it freely. And discretion, right? Discretion is the, is the, the wisdom applied to everyday decisions, right? We don't get that from financial security. We don't get that from a boat. We don't get that from a relationship, necessarily. Not in the same way. We get it from God. When he utters his voice, verse 13, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. So he controls the weather and all of its great power. I remember, uh, most of you slept since then, when we went through the Psalms, there was one, uh, somehow, uh, there was a reference to his control over the weather. And I remember looking up at that time. The power in a normal thunderstorm, the amount of electrical energy in a normal thunderstorm is equivalent to a 20 kiloton atomic bomb. Normal thunderstorm, right? Now, I don't know about you, 
But I take comfort knowing that God is in control of that much energy. Can you imagine that much energy in the wrong hands? That's pretty crazy. Can you imagine? And it, and it almost like, wow, this world is kind of fragile. Well, it's only as fragile as God lets it be because God is sovereign. God is loving. God is all of his attributes. But God is powerful. Make no mistake about it. A typical thunderstorm, I think it's like God you know, showing us what he's capable of. A typical thunderstorm equivalent to a 20 kiloton atomic bomb, and we worship the God that keeps control of that. By the way, this little wooden thing you set on your mantle, does it have that much power? No. Financial security, your boat, your relationship, do they have that much power? No. Not at all. Not at all. Verse 14, everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Again, I think in order. Dull-hearted and lacking knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image, for his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. So, do we worship the maker of all things, or do we worship something infinitely inferior to that? And whatever your thing is, I mean, it's easy for us to pick on a little hand-carved Baal statue, but it's not so easy to pick on that thing that we struggle with competing for our allegiance with the Lord. But we need to recognize that. God is the maker of all things. Our thing, whatever it is, is not the maker of all things. Verse 17, Gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitant of the forest, for thus says the Lord, Behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them that they may find it so. And so, you know, God's judgment is real. He's warning the people that Babylon is going to come and punish them. He gave them the, uh, an example of the northern kingdom of Israel 150 years prior. They had that history. They knew that history. They were wiped out by the Assyrians. So the Assyrians come in uh, 150 years prior. The Babylonians are going to come in now. And guess what? We in America... Are we exempt? No. no. We're not exempt. We're not exempt. God has, God executes judgments on nations. And we'd be foolish. We'd be foolish to think we're exempt. Verse 19. Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is severe. But I say truly this is an infirmity and I must bear it. My tent is plundered and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are no more. There is no one to pitch my tent anymore or set up my curtains. So Jeremiah, he's experiencing the personal pain, pain of judgment on his country that he has to watch this, right? And he has to uh, endure the rejection of friends and family even though he's going to be saved. And you know, let me just say this again. We talked about this last week. Serving the Lord, I think serving the Lord in America in this generation is a lonely endeavor in many ways. It's a call to the faithful to remain faithful, to not let our hearts be pulled to that thing that seems hip or that thing that seems relevant or that thing that seems like it would satisfy us or that thing that seems to work for everybody else or that thing that looks good on Instagram anything that pulls us away we need to be faithful to god and to god alone 
Verse 21, for the shepherds have become dull-hearted. A lot of people are dull-hearted around here that we're reading about, right? The shepherds have become dull-hearted and have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. Now, so he's talking here about the shepherds in, in Israel, in Judah. You know, they had a greater loyalty than just faithfully uh, serving and shepherding the people. It's possible today that leaders have a divided loyalty. But in a sense, we're all shepherds in that we all have uh, a sphere of influence, right? We all have those that we, that maybe look to us as leaders in some capacity. If we're parents, certainly that qualifies us. And again, let us not be dull-hearted. Let's not be dull-hearted. Let's continue to seek the Lord so we can set that example. Verse 22, Behold, the noise, the noise of the report has come and a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate a den of jackals. So again, the Babylonians are going to come from the north. They're going to scatter the nation. O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Oh, sorry, I skipped one. O oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. So notice this. I know the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Here's the interesting thing about idol worship. And again, keep in mind, what is that thing that is competing, is trying to be an idol in my life? Here's the thing about idol worship. Man's desire to worship idols is really a desire to serve himself. Man's desire to worship idols is really a desire to serve himself. If he creates an idol, he thinks he can create his own destiny. He no longer has a higher authority. You might say he does what's right in his own eyes, right? The book of Judges, last verse in the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel, no higher authority. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And again, we've said this before, you trace the book of Judges, it's like one failure after another, and I would not want that to be my destiny. For us, the desire to worship idols is a desire to serve ourselves. I don't want to create my own destiny. If I'm worshiping God, by definition, there has to be, uh, I have to surrender my life to something that's not me or to someone that's not me, and that is God. If I trust in my security, if I trust in my stuff, if I trust in, in my thing, whatever it is, then I kind of have a controlled handle on that. If I trust in God, I'm surrendering to Him. And that's why it's so important that we know the attributes of God, because the more we know the attributes of God, the more it's a no-brainer to worship Him the more it's a no-brainer to serve Him, to surrender to Him, to recognize that His wisdom and His power and all of that is infinitely beyond me and is infinitely better than anything I could come up with. 
stuff like he's blessed us above and beyond all we could ask or think with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? I can't do that for myself. But if I create my own little God, then, I'm, then I got control on it, right? Every curve and cut on this thing, right? Nate had control of it, right? When I make my own God, I have control of it. And really, it's all about control and, and self-determination. And so, as children of God, we need to be able to surrender to Him. Verse 24, O Lord, correct me, but with, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you, and on the families who do not call on your name, for they have eaten up, they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him, and consumed him, and made his dwelling place desolate. So Jeremiah closes this chapter with a simple request for God to rule in Jeremiah's own life as well as in the nations. Chapter 11, we'll read briefly. He, reads, he writes chapter, chapter, so chapter 10 into that temple discourse, right? Chapter 11, he talks now more in paragraphs than in lines, so we read this more as in paragraphs. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Hear the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers on the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt, with a, from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice, and do according to all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers, and give them to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is to this day. And I said, answered and said, So be it, Lord. Now you recall from chapter 1, we talked about this at the very beginning of this book, Jeremiah's ministry started in the days of Josiah, right? And you recall the big event that happened during the days of Josiah. Josiah was a godly king. He said, hey, let's clean up this, this dilapidated temple, right? Somebody's cleaning up this dilapidated temple. And lo and behold, they find a copy of the Bible, the scroll, the Old Testament law, tucked away in a corner, having been neglected for many, many years, right? Not unlike our America, right? So the Bible, having been neglected for many years, now it becomes a part of their, their national identity, right? The king reads it. He's convicted. He reads it before all the people. Now it's, all, now it's part of the public discourse. And this, I believe, is what Jeremiah is referring to. He says, hey, hear the words of this covenant. Now that we're talking about the, the, the Old Testament law, here's the words of this covenant. By the way, cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded to your fathers on the day I brought them out of Egypt. He's saying, you remember this word that we just read from the Old Testament law? He, read, he would have read Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is a long description of this is what's going to happen if you forsake me, if you embrace uh, all the, the Gentile pagan idol, idol worship. And these are the things you're going to ha- that are going to happen, and it's a long list of curses. That's why when Josiah read this, he read this, he saw that where they were in that point in time was a literal fulfillment of all that, and he knew that judgment is coming because God keeps his word. And so Jer- Josiah was convicted. Josiah wanted the people to read this and to be aware of it. And you know, along the way, God simply said, you know, I really want you to obey my voice so that you should be my people and I will be your God. I just want a relationship with you guys. I want to have fellowship with my children. 
And along the way, fellowship comes with blessing, right? Then I can establish the oath which I've sworn to your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. That's what I wanted. I wanted to have fellowship with my children, and I wanted to bless my children. But I can't do it if they reject me. Then the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ears, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. See, there again, they're serving themselves. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. And so now Jeremiah is going to go throughout the cities of Judah, and he's going to, quote, proclaim all these words. He's going to proclaim all these words. What did Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4? He said, preach the word. He said, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and as his kingdom, preach the word. That's what God's word was to Timothy, or Paul's word was to Timothy. It's what God's word was to Jeremiah. It's what God's word is to us. What do we do here on Sunday morning? Preach my opinions? I'm in trouble if I just preach my opinions. I'm in big trouble. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Preach the word when it's convenient, when everybody likes it. Did they like it when Jeremiah did it? No. Are they guaranteed to like it when we do it? No. So preach the word in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come, and I believe that time is here. I believe with all my heart that time is here. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Thank God that you guys do. Some will. There will always be a remnant that will. There will always be a remnant that will. But there will be a time, a time will come, Paul says, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. That's a heart thing, right? According to their own desires, because they, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That is a chilling prophecy pointing forward from the days of Paul and Timothy. So you be the judge how relevant that is for today. But you, that's us, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We have to preach the word like Jeremiah did. I believe in many ways our world is remarkably similar to the days of Jeremiah, and we need to be faithful. Verse 9, and the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the, members, among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a conspiracy. So God is a conspiracy theorist. They've turned their back. They've turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers and refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. So a conspiracy implies a well-orchestrated plot, right? And in reality, the human tendency for widespread sin, destruction, devotion to everything but God, whether it be a Baal idol or whether it be whatever our thing is, that tendency is a well-orchestrated plot by Satan. It's the same today. Verse 11. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense, but they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem that you've set up, altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. So notice this, God says, judgment's coming because you've forsaken me. And when judgment comes, you know, it's going to be ugly. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to chant to Baal. You're going to chant to Molech. You're going to chant to Chemosh. You're going to try to appease the gods. You're going to do all that. Is any of that going to work? No. It says they will, quote, they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. Now, fast forward a few thousand years. I believe, I mean, we're not, we're not experiencing judgment like the Babylonian invasion. We're not experiencing judgment like the Great Tribulation, which is yet to come. But there's some consequence of our decisions at times. I think when we fall into idolatry, sometimes we, fall, we, we get consequence of that, right? And then sometimes even in that, you know, we cry out to those gods, maybe those false gods that we're, that we're putting our trust in, right? And they don't deliver. What do you have as a result of that? You've got disillusioned people. Let me ask you this. Are there disillusioned people on earth today, in America today, in our community today? Let me ask you this one further. Are there disillusioned Christians in our community today? Think about that. Are there disillusioned Christians today? Now, I'm not saying God's going to guarantee us emotional bliss 24-7. But I think there's a thing where perhaps, and I'm just reading the Bible and trying to understand it, but I think there's a thing perhaps where, you know, God is the thing that, God is the God, God is the being, I should say, that we worship, that we should worship, that we should put our complete and total devotion and trust in. And sometimes there's a tendency, yeah, we kind of do that, and we kind of put our trust in something far more inferior. And then when hard times come, we call on that thing that's far more inferior. And the end result is disillusionment. Right? Even in the name of, even in the name of Christians. Still got God up there. And we're mostly loyal to Him. And that thing that we're really putting our trust in doesn't deliver. We cry out to it. And it still doesn't deliver. And we find ourselves frustrated and disillusioned. Is that a real picture sometimes? Yeah, I believe it's a real picture sometimes. I think we've got to be very careful. Got to be very careful. Let me tell you this. And again, God doesn't guarantee eternal bliss. I heard a great teaching this week. Great teaching. Talking about Job. You know, the interesting thing about Job, Job spends a few dozen chapters 
saying, man, if I, could get, if I could just have God's ear for a second, man, I'd give him a piece of my mind, and I'm going through this, and why does this happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? And I've you know, been to the Christian bookstores, I've read all of them, and I just haven't figured out why good, bad things happen to good people, and I'm a good people, and God's let me down, and God's disappointed, and God's done this, and God's done this, and that's basically the book of Job, except a far abbreviated version. And then God shows up. And God speaks out of the whirlwind. And God basically reveals who he is to Job. And God never answers Job's questions. God never answers Job's questions. That's in many ways the point of the book of Job. Then at the very end, after God has revealed himself, God says, by the way, Job, you said you wanted to talk to me. What was it you had to say? And Job says, never mind. I'm good. I repent, is what he said. Interestingly, and as this guy was bringing it out, really God did that to him twice. So So God reveals himself. And he says, oh, by the way, Job, what do you got to say? He said, um, never mind. First time he said, basically said, never mind. And God reveals himself some more. and says, okay, now, Job, I'm giving you another chance. What do you want to say? And the second time he said, I repent. Isn't that crazy? So let me say this. Your thing, your idol, I'm not accusing you of having idols, but we all have a tendency toward idolatry. Your idol, it'll let you down. Oh, you can pray to it. You can do a rain dance for it. You can chant to it. You can, you can pat it. You can throw gold on it. You can nail it to, to the wall. You can do all kinds of things, but it's going to let you down. And when it lets you down, there's going to be things that will happen. God will never let you down. Now, having said that, we're limited finite creatures just like Job. We don't always get to read chapter 1 and 2 in our book of Job. About as it relates to our lives. So we don't always see the big picture, right? We don't always know what God is doing, but I, know, I can tell you this, based on the reality of Scripture, if the Scripture is true, then God will never let you down. It may feel like it at times. I get that. Life may deal you uh, difficulty that I cannot explain. And I've had people share with me well-meaning Christians who love the Lord and serve the Lord and they have questions and they have challenges and they have difficulties that I have no answer for. But I am wholeheartedly convinced that in the eternal context we'll say, I think all those unanswered questions when we get to heaven we'll say, oh yeah. And I think all those things we struggle with, all those things that we say, man, if I just had five minutes with God, man, I would Ooh, I'd give him a piece of my mind. And then we're going to get there. And we're going to spend a couple million years singing. singing holy, holy, holy. 
is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And none of us, mark my words, none of us who are there are going to ask God to explain that thing that we experienced in 2021 or whenever it was. None of us are going to ask God to clarify why did that happen the way it happened? Why did that guy do me wrong? Why did my parents do me wrong? Why did I have to carry so much baggage around all my life? Well, you don't, by the way. But we're just going to be so consumed with who God is, everything else will melt away, just like the book of Job. Everything else will completely melt away, just like the book of Job. So, God will never let us down. Verse 13, for, you, for according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah. I read that. You had many gods, they didn't deliver. You're disillusioned. Verse 14, so do not pray for this people. Listen to this. This is the second time God's told Jeremiah this. Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the, in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. He's saying don't pray for them. They don't, what they need is repentance. And at this point, that's the only thing that's going to get them anywhere. So don't waste your time. What has, beloved, what has my beloved to do in my house, having done lewd deeds with many, and the holy flesh has passed from you? When you do evil, then you rejoice. The Lord has called your name green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are broken. So God loved his people. His, he called them his beloved people, but they would rather do evil than to have fellowship with him. Can I tell you this? Again, their hearts were dull-hearted, and they took their minds into foolishness as a result. Please, please, for your own good, don't mix the worship of God with evil. With evil. That's what these guys are doing. For the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. Again, judgment is coming. Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it, and I know it. For you showed me their doings, but I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter. This is Jeremiah personally. And I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. And let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. So just briefly, I want to just give us a little heads up. I mentioned last week, you know, life, life of serving the Lord faithfully like Jeremiah did sometimes feels lonely. Sometimes we feel like we have to swim upstream. We're going against the flow. Sometimes it's not just that. Sometimes we are actively persecuted because of our faith. Because we're being faithful. All we did was just try to serve the Lord, mind our own business. And sometimes persecution will come because people don't like that conviction. People don't like the conviction. And sometimes, honestly, and I've seen this play out, if you're a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, sometimes you being in a room with people who want to live like these guys did, call themselves religious, call themselves Christians, and still live with divided loyalties. If you walk in a room full of those people, there's conviction. I believe 
it has to do with the Holy Spirit in ways that I don't fully understand. But I believe sometimes you can walk in a room and conviction is there. And they don't know what to do with it. So they blame you for it. That's what happened to Jeremiah. But, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have revealed my cause. Jeremiah gives a little bit of the answer of what happens if and when that would ever happen to you. Here's what you do. You get on Facebook, set the record straight to everybody you know, and, uh, and rally your troops and load your guns. Is that what you do? No, you let God sort it out. Can I tell you this? If, if, there's, if there's advice I could give anybody in that context, let, don't try to fight it. Do what you need to do, but let God sort it out. Let God sort it out. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, that was his hometown, Jeremiah's hometown, who seek your life. Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by your hand. So these guys are saying, don't you prophesy or else we're going to kill you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I'll punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and there shall be no remnant of them, for I will bring catastrophe on the men of Anathoth, even the year of their punishment. So these men from Anathoth, they're saying, Don't you prophesy in the name of the Lord. He said, I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm going to let the Lord sort it out. And the Lord did. The Lord did. So, God does not share his glory with another, he tells us in his scripture. He doesn't share his glory with financial security. He doesn't share his glory with a boat. He doesn't share his glory with a set of golf clubs. He doesn't share his glory with a relationship. He doesn't share his glory with anything or anyone. And we have to be aware that there are those things that try to compete for our allegiance to the Lord. We've got to be careful about our hearts. Don't let our hearts pull our minds into those areas. And along the way, just know that God is faithful. God's attributes are infinite. God is good. God is good. God controls the thunderstorm, the 20 kiloton nuclear bomb power thunderstorm. And God controls our hearts. We need to be surrendered to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are so worthy of our worship. You are so worthy of our devotion. You're so worthy of our trust. And Lord, we know that there are questions on this, or this side of heaven that don't get answered. And there may be questions related to our own lives. There may be questions that are discouraging to us. But Lord, help us to know that you are you're good. And as we recognize your goodness, as we recognize who you are as much as possible on this side of heaven, Lord, we know that as we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of this earth grow strangely, strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so, Lord, thank you for that truth. Help us to embrace it and help us to live it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome week.